I'm Polly Russell and welcome to Unfinished Business, the podcast that explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. Throughout this podcast series, I've been delving into subjects and themes that are explored in an exhibition of the same name at the British Library. The exhibition closes on the 1st of August 2021, so do go and visit before it's too late. So far in the podcast, I've had fascinating conversations about everything from cycling to domestic violence to beauty to sexual pleasure. Every episode has highlighted some area of unfinished business in the battle for women's rights. And today we are issuing a rallying cry. We are metaphorically marching, protesting, signing petitions, and we're exploring how women have made their voices heard in the past and are still fighting for change today. Joining me is the fantastic Amica George, MBE, who campaigns fiercely against period poverty. At the age of just 17, she started a petition addressed to Westminster, which gained over 200,000 signatories. And while still at school, she founded the hashtag Free Periods organization in April 2017. The organisation fights to ensure that no young person has to miss out on their education because they menstruate. And in 2019, the government committed to funding period products in every single state school and college in England. What an amazing achievement, Amica. I cannot believe it. I'm feeling incredibly humbled because I definitely was not doing anything like that at 17. Aside from and as well as spearheading this incredible campaign, you have also just written the most fabulous book, which I have hoovered up, called Make It Happen, uh, all about how we can all become activists. It's the most fantastic manual and also kind of a personal journey. It tells your story. I, I really encourage everybody to go and get a copy. It is just wonderful. But thank you so much for joining us today for us to explore this kind of idea about what it takes and how we can campaign and what we should be campaigning about. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so honoured to be on this podcast. And as I mentioned to you just before, I'm a big fan of the British Library, so I feel very honoured. <laughs> I, yeah, I was delighted to hear that you've been using it as a, a student, as a GCSE, A-level student, and then an undergraduate, and that for you, getting a reader's card at the age of 18 was more exciting than going out for your first pint. So I'm absolutely thrilled. <laughs> it's not sad. Nerds of the world unite, Amica. Um, so look, can we start with you and just kind of go back to the beginning of your campaigning about periods. Why period poverty? How did this come about for you? Yeah, as you mentioned, it started when I was about 17, back in 2017. It feels like a very long time ago now. And I, I'd heard words like activism and campaigning, but I think to me, they always felt quite lofty and inaccessible. They didn't really feel particularly um, appealing to young people, I'd say, because they felt like they were very much confined to Westminster and politics and MPs and that kind of thing. When I read about period poverty for the first time, it was in an article that was talking about period supplies having to be redirected from Africa to England. And a lot of people were shocked because I think we have a false sense of security almost in the UK that there's no such thing as poverty and everyone's okay and every child has the right to get an education and every child does go to school. And 
here was this issue that was detailing girls particularly having to be having to either miss a week of school every month because of lack of access to period products or using alternatives like toilet paper or socks or newspaper whatever they could get their hands on just to be able to go to school that day and during their period so I like many other people when it was in the media was completely just completely flabbergasted that this was an issue and I thought being a young person and knowing a lot of young people my friends particularly who are very politically engaged and cared a lot about this issue when I talked to them about it I knew that if I was to say something online and to call on the government to make a long-term change then there would be people by my side so I never really felt alone as a, a lone voice talking about periods I think as soon as I started it I was very lucky that momentum gathered incredibly quickly and as you mentioned the signatures on the petition rose and I was getting I was completely overwhelmed with people saying how can I get involved how can I write to my MP let's do a real life protest let's do a social media campaign and it kind of just grew and grew from there and yeah that's where it all began. I would love to ask you about when did you realize that the campaign was sort of gaining momentum? So it was probably quite early on when at first, I was really struggling to get, I think I wanted to hit 100 signatures on the petition. And I was emailing everyone frantically to say, you know, people, my parents, friends and parents of girls at my school and yeah, just anyone I could who would reply, I was sending them an email with the link and saying, please sign. And then I was also doing the same. And I talk about this in the book because this was very difficult, much harder than I envisaged it would be contacting newspapers and media outlets and asking can I give interviews and then it was probably a couple of maybe a month or so down the line when I was then being overwhelmed with requests and I didn't have to ask anymore and I thought this is actually now taking off and there are definitely more people than just me and my friends who care about this and to be honest it's been oh my gosh it's been four years now almost five years and um, I still am not used to just how many people know about free periods and have supported me and I think the protest that we held in 2017 at the end of the year was one of the first times I physically saw the number of people who cared about this it was this crowd of I mean we'll never know exactly how many people but we've estimated about 2,000 people came and it was unbelievable seeing that many faces all everyone wearing red or had red face paint on or whatever and that was a really emotional day for me because it was very much a physical manifestation of this community that I built online and that's why I feel very uncomfortable taking credit for our success as you know as an individual because this is a separate point but I think a lot of activism now does get quite individualized and we tend to conflate issues you know like period poverty with my face or um, another campaigner but actually it never happens like that it's never one person doing one speech right and so it's not called social movements or social activism for nothing as it's not called individual you know it is social but I think you can still take some credit as well but you're raising some really interesting points about these different ways of campaigning you know that, that it's a kind of strategy that's got you've got to have a lot of, sort of spokes in the wheel as it was so social media you've got your petition you're out there marching and so I'd love to play you some recordings of some really inspiring campaigns other sorts of campaigns and activists that have been involved with and contributed to the exhibition or who we just find really inspiring and in this set of clips all the speakers that we asked are talking about what they found 
to be the best way for their messages to get out and get themselves noticed. So I'd, I'd love to talk to you about them. So the first person we're going to hear from uh, is someone I'm sure that you know, because it's from Bloody Good Period, who also campaign in a similar space, although their focus, I think, is more on asylum seeker, refugee women, people who don't have the means to pay for period products, not so much just in schools. Hi, I'm Rachel Grocott, Director of Communications and Public Fundraising at Bloody Good Period. We fight for menstrual equity and the rights of women and all people who bleed. What have you found is the best way for your message or work to get noticed? We are bold in our approach because we believe that being quiet and secretive about periods is one of the things that has led us to the situation we're in now, where so many people don't know what's happening to them when their periods start, where we apparently have to use products designed for blue liquid and that come in rustle-free wrappers because it's apparently so shameful to be on your period. So at Bloody Good Period, we shout loud. We have a name that grabs attention. It might even offend some people, but it makes most people laugh um, because we believe that the time for whispering about periods is over. It's time to shout and create change. So that's why you will find period art on our social media channels. It's why we hold an annual comedy fundraiser, Bloody Funny, to encourage people to laugh about periods and other topics. And that's why we encourage any and all period conversations. So you must know Bloody Good Period, I imagine, Amica, right? Yeah, definitely. They've been huge supporters of us. I know Gabby really well, the founder. And you really emphasise that in your book, the kind of importance of allyship and connections. But the other thing that I thought was interesting from what Rachel was saying there, which really resonated with what I understood from your book, was this kind of idea about making noise and being loud. And I think you talk about, you know, historically girls and women have been told to behave and be quiet. And it's not necessarily a sort of, quotes natural way for us to inhabit the world. And I would love to talk to you a bit about that, about how you found your own voice, how you became loud, took up space, and also how you dare, how you dare put your head above the parapet. I'd say, firstly, I don't think it's something that comes completely naturally to me. I don't think I'm an inherently loud or confident person. And I think that's another thing that could maybe be off-putting for people looking to get into campaigning or activism. And that's, again, why I think it comes back to community and drawing on different people's skills and resources and how you can work together and and capitalise on those yeah I definitely think it feels quite scary and like almost subversive to speak up especially on an issue that is as taboo and stigmatises menstruation I felt I don't think I was fully prepared when I first started free periods for the level of shame and stigma that had been completely entrenched in the whole subject and yeah, I realised that as I was going on and I was talking about it and getting responses from people online saying it was disgusting or to stop talking about it. But more than a health or a reproductive issue, it's a political issue because it was denying girls and people who have periods in education. And actually, by politicians ignoring that is, I think, just as bad as ignoring any other social issue. Periods are obviously not seen as a political issue in the same way that so many quote-unquote women's issues like you know, abortion or reproductive health or any of those things were not seen as political or even politically important until, you know, activism and campaigners had to make them political kind of forcefully. Yeah, and not only were they not seen as political, they weren't seen as appropriate to be discussed in a public forum. There's so much 
I'm interested in about, for instance, the way in which period poverty intersects with questions of just poverty. When you think about trying to end poverty and structural social inequality, that's a huge thing that's kind of totally overwhelming. But thinking through the lens of periods is very focused, but it is actually getting to a bigger question about why are these inequalities, why do they exist? Completely. It's because period poverty is, of course, it's just one effect of social inequality. So if, you know, I've read so many testimonies from people who are suffering from period poverty and got in touch with me, particularly at the beginning of the campaign, saying, I know that my family can't afford the products and I actually don't want to ask because I know that if I do ask for a tampon, a pack of tampons or something this month, it will be a choice between that or food or, you know, the heating. And that's not a position that I want to put my parents in. So I think in a way, I would hope period poverty is one part of a broader wake-up call for not just politicians, but actually just a kind of the whole population. Because when it did hit the headlines, it made a lot of people realise that these are young people who are growing up in poverty. I would really love to play you now a clip by a person called Prashita, who campaigns for LGBTQI plus rights and is a community organiser and a writer. But it would be great to talk to you about how they campaign and how they see campaigning. I'm Prashita Maheshri Aplin. I'm a currently politics editor at Bricks Magazine and a trustee of the Direct Action Group Voices for London. I honestly just simply hope to create a world where everyone who is currently oppressed in any way is free to be who they are, a world where gender is not a chore but rather a celebration, a world where all harmful violent structures such as capitalism, colonialism, etc. are dismantled and where we centre community care and love. I think social media is a really powerful tool in spreading messages and in mobilising people and it's definitely been effective in allowing my messages and work to reach people who might need to or want to engage with them. But I also think that social media has its limitations, which is why I love to write long-form articles and thought pieces. It allows me to explore topics on a deeper level, to express nuances and to share the stories of my community or that of individuals who are impacted by the relevant issues. I love their account and I think that's really an important part is balancing that sense of I think it comes inherently from hope and the idea of imagining something better is kind of I don't think you can really do activism without it but then often you do have to balance that with the practical reality of as Prashita mentioned the oppressive structures that we do live in and we kind of have to work with almost in order to dismantle them and you know in order to make change you have to kind of you have to be realistic and for me also I felt after two and a half years of campaigning and I just felt like I was often hitting a brick wall and I had to really quite kind of face the reality of the fact that what I was doing wasn't really working and I did have to change tack. I think creativity is a really important part of that and being flexible in your thought and in your strategy. I hear you in sort of this necessity to remain optimistic, to be hopeful. But the other thing I'm hearing from you is when you said you felt like you came up against a brick wall. I'm really fascinated by this point about tenacity, because it seems to me that we focus a lot when we think about campaigning successful individuals or organisations in the past or now. We focus a lot on kind of vision and courage. But actually, 
when I was looking back through the history, it struck me that actually often it is just like barnacle-like tenacity, just hanging on and carrying on. And, you know, women didn't get the vote after two or three years. It was decades. And in your book, you have this brilliant quote from Amelia Earhart, the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity, which I just love. And where do you find that tenacity from? I think it definitely came with time and experience. It came with kind of initially sending multiple, multiple emails to my own MP and then other MPs and anyone who would listen and continually being met with no reply, just that kind of auto reply, which really annoyed me and kind of getting used to that and getting used to that feeling kind of, I don't want to call it rejection, but that feeling of people kind of turning the other way because they don't want to face the reality of an issue that they don't really want to deal with. That's what it felt like. And I've tried very hard, and again, it came with experience, to not take it personally. You know, I've experienced quite severe burnout a few times. So kind of learning that, learning that I couldn't do it alone. What was the moment like, Amika, when you realised that the government were actually going to, to do what you had been campaigning for? What did you feel at that moment? Can you remember it? I definitely can. Yeah, I was I was at university. I was in my first year, I think, at university, and I'd just come home for the weekend. And I, it's so bizarre that I had no kind of heads up. I had no idea what was happening until somebody, Gemma Abbott from the Free Periods team, sent me a WhatsApp message with a guard and linked to a Guardian article that said that there was a rumor that uh, Philip Hammond, who was the Chancellor at the time, was going to make the announcement in his next budget. So at first I didn't really believe it. I was like, surely not. And then it turned very quickly from celebration into really scrutinising the scheme. At first it was just for secondary school students. And we said that actually it had to be primary school as well. I personally started my period in primary school and I had been contacted by, by a lot of young people who really needed the products. So that was successful in kind of expanding the breadth of the scheme. And then the scheme started at the beginning of 2020. And there are a lot of issues with it, which is why free periods is still up and running and still um, talking about the need for universal access because the scheme is an opt-in scheme, which means that every school has the right and the uh, budget to order the products that they need for their students, but they only get them if they're actively opt-in. So it really depends on their awareness, presumably, that that scheme is available, right? Completely. And because of lockdown and the pandemic, obviously, um, from the beginning of the year of last year, it meant that it was brushed on the carpet by a lot of schools just because that wasn't their most pressing need at a very stressful time. So what I hear here is the gain that you made was fabulous and was amazing, but there's still so much more to play to. But can I just take you back to that moment where you see that Guardian article and you read this rumour about Hammond is potentially going to make this decision. What did you feel? What did you do at that moment? Um, I think my mum took me out for cake and like was too kind of overwhelmed and I had too much adrenaline to eat the cake. <laughs> and then I had to immediately go home and write a press release. <laughs> so it became, it was a moment of excitement and celebration and then it was quite stressful because I, I think I was in the middle of my end of first year exams and I had to kind of go back and forth to London to do interviews and talk about the scheme. And it was really exciting. Above all, it was super exciting. And I should definitely mention free periods isn't just me anymore. It's a company limited by guarantee and we have a board of directors and yeah, two members of staff. So it's really exciting. Can we listen now to a couple more clips? Because they're really quite moving and interesting and they're about different 
organization and activists' most memorable moments. And clearly, this is one of your memorable moments. But I'd love to hear again from Natasha Walter from Women for Refugee Women. I think for me, the most memorable moment at Women for Refugee Women will always be the huge demonstration that we organised at Yarlswood Detention Centre in 2015. At that time, a lot of the public just weren't really aware that women seeking asylum were being locked up in immigration detention in the UK. And we just didn't know how many people would turn up. So it was amazing to see so many supporters really committed to going there that day and raising their voices and standing alongside refugee women in detention. It was incredible to hear the supporters singing and hear women from inside the detention centre singing back. And I think that day really proved to me that the pressure could build, that solidarity was there for refugee women in the Set Her Free campaign. And now there are almost no women locked up in Yarl's Wood because of the pressure that we've brought to bear. It's really moving, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it made me think of the protests that we held in 2017 and it was that same feeling of collective solidarity. And I think when people turn up to a physical protest, it feels so meaningful because it, it often is quite easy to kind of reshare an Instagram post or retweet something or whatever. But when people have actively turned up and are shouting, often, as Natasha mentioned, for other people, advocating for kind of the unheard, I think that's really moving. Yeah, and I think that particularly after this year of COVID and lockdown, I think the sort of power of meeting in person, I mean, we've all understood how important that is. But in the context of campaigning and trying to sort of harness action and change, actually meeting in real life must be incredibly important in galvanising people to continue and also kind of feeling that you're all sort of part of something. And I wanted to play you another clip now that I really think speaks to that. Here's Prashita. The most memorable aspect of the work has definitely been the community and the chosen family that I've built through this work as an activist. So I guess like Transpire 2021, which was held a few weeks ago, was like definitely one of the most memorable moments for me. It was beautiful, it was healing. I saw and met so many wonderful people that I've been speaking to and working with for the past year. And to be able to translate that online space into an IRL space was just so beautiful. And I also wanted to play you this clip. Here's Isabel from United Voices of the World. UVW is an anti-racist direct action trade union for precarious migrant and low-paid workers. Over half of our members identify as women and are employed in the hospitality, cleaning, care, charity, cultural, sex work, architectural and legal sectors. Towards the end of 2019, hundreds of outsourced cleaners, porters and caterers at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington got together to take a stand against a two-tier workforce. Two courageous and brilliant women leaders, Vitalia and Loretta, led a wave of strike action. In fact, they led the longest and noisiest strike of outsourced workers in NHS's history and put an end to the poverty wages, dirty uniforms and appalling conditions that they were subjected to. Today, not only are these workers enjoying improved working conditions as direct employees of Imperial College NHS Trust, but so are thousands of their colleagues at several other hospitals across the Trust. 
really inspiring. It's incredible, isn't it? And it really makes me think, you know, that this kind of long history of of women campaigning and it connects to me particularly for parts of the exhibition that we've had at the British Library and stories of different strikes and in particular the strike in the early 20th century which was kind of organised and spearheaded by a woman called Mary MacArthur. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's an amazing kind of trade union campaigner and she organised 1,000 chain makers to go on strike and these chain makers, women chain makers, worked in in their own backyards, piecemeal, terrible, terrible conditions, very, very low wages and while men were working making chains in factories they were just working at the backs of their houses also looking after children and homes so they had no way of organizing and Mary MacArthur was this great organizer and she sort of helped spearhead this campaign bringing them all together and getting them funded for their strike by the National Federation of Women's Workers Uh, they all went on strike and they got a huge amount of international and national press for this strike. You know, this is back in the early 20th century and they won that strike. And as a result of that, they doubled their wages. And not only that, that chain makers strike became the test case for minimum wages and their successes led to hundreds of other strikes taking place successfully and in fact the kind of minimum wage laws that we talk about and know about now kind of have their roots in women campaigning organizing coming together you know we're still campaigning this we're still having to fight for change for social justice but it's got this long history that's just so important to know about amika you've got so much experience, albeit in a relatively short amount of time, you know, just four years, really. What advice would you give to people wanting to make a change? How do you start and not get overwhelmed? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, a million dollar question, I guess. I think with campaigning, I do believe quite strongly that the world we live in now, it has to involve activism, it has to involve campaigners, and it has to be young people and people from marginalized backgrounds and people with a diversity of experience leading that charge my advice for not getting overwhelmed is being okay with being overwhelmed sometimes because often there's a huge pressure to kind of separate yourself from the thing that you're dedicating your time towards and actually it's so normal to be overwhelmed and stressed and to cry a lot which is what I definitely did and I think getting used to that and knowing that actually it is draining draining work and it is a strain and putting yourself out there often can come at a cost and so putting yourself first in a lot of ways knowing when to switch off I think often people who do this kind of work you know they have full-time jobs or I was you know in education and having that balance and having that kind of feeling like you're being pulled in too many directions is normal and I think a lot of women can relate to that for sure you know, very few people earn enough money as campaigners. We've got these fantastic leaflets in the British Library, scrawled leaflets, handwritten notes from OWAD, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, which was set up in the nineteen late 1970s, early 80s. And it's um, notes written by a, an activist campaigner called Jan McKenley. And what I love about them is she's talking about setting up supplementary schools education for black children who were being disproportionately um, disadvantaged at school. And the, the OWAD was setting up these schools at the weekend to support black children because they campaigned about education and housing and uh, stop and search laws. But the point is that these notes, what they show you is the campaigning is taking place around life. You know, they're sort of scribbled and we can't do that because we're picking up the kids. And it's like, yeah, it's hard. Like you're trying to squeeze this into the rest of your life. 
what are your sort of plans for the the future? I mean, I suppose the immediate-ish future, the next couple of years, what are you going to be focusing on? So I've just graduated. I, I graduated last weekend, actually. Yay! <laughs> and I'm <laughs> thanks. And I think my first thing is I'm going to take a bit of a break. I need to kind of rest for a good few months. And yeah, I feel like I'm at a very pivotal point of deciding what I want to do with my life. Um, I know that it will definitely be to do with this type of work. It will be related to activism and campaigning. And the book actually comes out in paperback in January, which is really exciting. I think you've done enough and achieved enough in four years to allow yourself a bit of a break. I think that's only fair because, to be fair, you've achieved more than most of us will achieve in our whole lives in four years. So that sounds entirely reasonable to me. I just want to finish off by reflecting with you on, you know, who is responsible for making change? And before you answer that, can we just listen to some clips by some of the activists that we've recorded? Sure. I think every single one of us is responsible for making change towards a fairer society. Of course, there are people with more systemic power who have a responsibility to take bigger actions towards creating this society. But we also know that many of those people are not willing and or not ready to give up any of that power yet. So we have to fight for our liberation together from a grassroots level. We can only make this change all together in solidarity with one another, shoulder to shoulder. I think that if we stand by when we see injustice happening, we are complicit. And we all have a part to play in creating the society that we want to see. For me, that's one where all women can live lives of dignity and safety and freedom. Join a union and let's fight together for dignity, equality and respect. Amika, would you like to add anything or reflect on you know who is responsible for change who should stand up and make a difference I I mean I obviously want to echo what all three of those activists said and I think yeah I really resonate with that idea of collective momentum and solidarity and I think especially right now there feels like a real sense of urgency particularly I'd say amongst my generation a sense of urgency to get involved in these this kind of work to get in, into activism um the first chapter of my book is called choose your cause which I think does imply that if you don't have something right now it's important to to get involved in something you know even if it's something so small in your local community or in your school or workplace or even in your house in your home I think we all have more power than we're allowed to believe and political power particularly does reside not just in yeah the halls of Westminster it's in every one of us and for me a kind of utopian world would be one in which anyone regardless of their age gender background or whatever feels like they really can engage and shape society and culture in the way that they want it to look. I think that is a great place to end this podcast I want to encourage everybody to go to the British Library exhibition if they can before it closes on the 1st of August, but also to engage with all the digital content we've made, this podcast series and what's on the British Library website. But I also encourage everybody to buy Amica's book, whether in hardback now or in paperback in January. As a reminder, it's called Make It Happen and it's fabulous. And I'm going to finish by quoting you, Amica, because I found this really inspiring and useful. You said, for every moment or uprising, there has been a person who, like you, has decided that it was time for urgent and compelling change, who hesitated about starting, who started and then stumbled, 
but who fought on. I think that is a rallying cry for us all to think about what we can do, how we can change the world, just like you have, Amica. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Unfinished Business podcast series. Do go back and listen to any episodes that you've missed and contact us on social media and please do leave a review. I would like to thank the series producer, Katie Davis, who has been fantastic and the executive producer, Alex Watson. This is a Pixie production for the British Library. Happy organising. <laughs>